Hello and welcome back to the Learn to Grow podcast. Each week I talk to leaders in learning about the learning landscape and I am delighted to kick off the second season of this show and especially excited to be starting with such a bang. This week I had the pleasure of chatting to Heather McGowan who is one of the most influential and insightful voices on the future of work and the future of learning. Heather is renowned globally as a keynote speaker, a professor, and co-author with Chris Shipley of the outstanding book, The Adaptation Advantage. This book was in my top three books of the year, for sure, and perhaps one of the most important books I've read in recent years. We talk about everything from professional identities to digital transformations, and explore some of Heather's most recent ideas about the emergence of the human capital era. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Here is the impressive Heather McGowan. Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. How are you and where are you in the world right now? I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, we're digging out for some snow here, but not quite as much as my uh, friends and, and former neighbors in New York City. Very good. And I am in uh, the mountains of North Carolina, just south of Asheville, where it is very cold, but no snow. So it's funny, you know, despite the fact that I know uh, most of the book was written kind of before last year, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it still feels hard not to read it as a custom-built <laughs> crisis response manual for 2020. Uh, does it feel like that to you a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It feels a little eerily prescient because a lot of the stuff we suggested were things that we thought would happen over the next five to 10 years, not the next five to 10 months. So um, it came out and you know, a lot of people were like, when did you write this? And I was like, before we just we saw some of these trends coming we just didn't know the speed at which they'd accelerate you know talk about speed the speed at which change has accelerated you know justin trudeau has a great quote that the pace of change has never been this fast and it will never be this slow again right do you think that's true yeah yeah we use that quote in the book as well i'm, I'm not sure we use trudeau but a lot of people have said it that the slowest pace of change for the rest of your life is actually right now yeah and it, since we wrote, since we wrote that, and made that declaration, or, or shared it from one of the many people who've already said it, mm-hmm. um, it's actually really accelerated. In the first uh, 60, 90 days, we went into lockdown. We leapt forward five years in our transformation to digital, according to McKinsey, which is really just human transformation. We didn't know what we were capable of until pressed. We were about uh, 20% into our migration of the cloud, according to Accenture, and the, the 80% that was left was supposed to take a decade. Now it's going to happen in five years. We thought we'd be handing things off to technology. You know, we're another decade or so. We might be at 50% of our current tasks handed off to technology. World Economic Forum says we'll do that by 2025. So everything has just dramatically accelerated. Speaking of change, then, one of those changes is, is increased automation. Right. And that's the one that mm-hmm. kind of causes people to freak out a little bit. <laughs> like the, the yeah. machines are coming for our jobs. In the book, you talk about the three A's. You talk about atomization, automation, and augmentation. Could you speak Mm -hmm. a little bit about that and explain what they are? Sure. So I tend to like alliteration because it makes it easier to remember things. And as we remember, sort of like recall things. So I use the same letter to start as many things as possible just to make that easier. (laughs) So atomization is basically a job broken into a job fragment. So it used to be when you needed to get a ride somewhere, you called the taxi dispatch center and you got a taxi or a limo service. That became atomized with Uber. Um, you went to a Hilton.com to, or you called Hilton back in the day to get a room 
that became Airbnb. Um, in the pandemic, many of us are using Instacart or similar for somebody to take that job fragment up away from us. So atomization is anytime you can take a task away from your life or your work, and somebody can do it in isolation and complete that task for you. Um, so it's kind of, if you think about it, like you're, you think about your job and you think of all the things in your job you may not want to do or somebody else would be better at doing. If you could hand those off, but you don't have the funds to hire someone because there's not enough tasks for a full-time job, you atomize that work and you hand it off. So that's kind of the gig platform world. And then automation is when the, the predictability of those tasks becomes such that it's routine enough that in technology is in place enough that you can fully hand that off to a piece of technology. So I don't know if you've noticed lately when you're writing into Google or LinkedIn or one of those things, it might start suggesting words for you. Mm -hmm. It's starting to automate, get you used to automating your responses. Or, you know, you can give Google permission to go through your calendar, pick up things that are dates, put them on your calendar with permission. That's an automation of some of the administrative assistant function that used to be there. Um, software is going to automate and rapidly scale up much more quickly than physical automation because it doesn't require another physical unit to do each task. So we're starting to see more and more of that. And you'll see it as you slowly start to hand stuff off to it. And then augmentation is simply where human extends the potential, the technology extends the potential of the human. So for example, I had a surgery like 10 years ago with the Da Vinci robot. They're using that kind of stuff more and more because they can do high precision laparoscopic surgeries. People can wear exoskeleton structures when they work in factories and sit so that extends their physical human performance. Um, uh, or get artificial cognition, otherwise known as artificial intelligence, but it's not intelligence yet, nor will it be anytime soon, um, allows you, or machine learning allows you to simulate things like, for example, the development of the vaccine, the reason we got to a vaccine in 10 months as opposed to 10 to 15 years was because we used, not only did we have the genomic sequence to begin with, we used something called computational immunology, which allowed us to simulate all the things that this vaccine could do in the body so that when we got to human trials, we had a better understanding of where we needed to narrow the scope on the vaccines that went from, you know, through the different phases in the pipeline. So that's atomization, automation, augmentation. To allay the fears then of those who think that the robots are coming for their jobs, it sounds like what you're saying with augmentation is that automation can actually free us up to focus on kind of more dynamic uh, or more human-centric elements of the work that we're doing. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So I get the fear. I, I absolutely get the fear. But if we're smart about it, we will use technology whether it be physical uh, robots or pieces of technology or software to remove this stuff that's just boring, that we're not good at, or in some cases is dangerous. You know, the way drones can fly over after a disaster and make an assessment or make deliveries, then a human doesn't have to get in harm's way. You know, the way a piece of software can, you know, simulate this in the instance of the computational immunology, so I can leap forward us forward. So humans can focus on what humans do best, which was never routine and predictable. Interesting. It's also it reminds me of the, you know, in the 80s, bank tellers thought ATMs would take their jobs away, right? But it actually just yeah. let them focus on customer centric stuff, right? Uh, things that, that right. were not just dispensing money, right? Right. One of the reasons then I think that people are skeptical of robots taking their jobs is because we are so heavily invested, as you've talked about, in our professional identities. And that mm -hmm. starts so young. 
right? Uh, and mm-hmm. and there's those three insidious questions that you talk about, right? That that you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which we get, you know, earlier and earlier, right? Yeah. Uh, then you get what do you what will be or what is your major in, in school in college? Uh, and then mm-hmm. for the rest of our lives, <laughs> what do you do for work? Right, right, right. Why do those questions come up? so often and why are why is professional identity so ingrained in our personal identities well we've created this whole machine to create a deployable workforce you know so from 1960 to 1980 for example um, when we were entering the third industrial revolution in imperfect framework the industrial revolution framework is imperfect but it's good to discuss skills so i still use it Um, when we're coming into the third industrial revolution which was basically computerization of society we discovered that less and less of our work was going to be about pulling levers and making things and more about cognitive work. So we pushed as many people as possible to go to universities. And that became a boom for higher ed. Between 1960 and 1990 in the U.S., we doubled the number of higher ed institutions. A lot of that was at the community college level. But junior colleges became colleges, became universities. And we became hyper-focused on turning out somebody with a good starting salary. So let's look at the metrics they use in higher ed. Uh, A school is better if they reject more people, yield. So they spend more money buying more people, convincing more people to apply there so they can reject more of them so they can look more selective. (laughs) That makes you better? Brutal. (laughs) (laughs) And then we hyper-focus on select majors that will give you that first salary bump. And Burning Glass has shown, if you don't know Burning Glass, a really interesting company, the data-driven company. That, you know, you will graduate if you have a STEM major, and we do need plenty of STEM people. But if you graduate in a STEM-only major, the greatest premium you will get is at graduation over your peers. And unless you infuse that with some human skills or further study, et cetera, it, that premium drops to zero. In, in, the, in the UK, the BBC did some research and found that if you're going to law school, if you have a law undergraduate degree and then you go to law school, you actually have the lowest salary premium of your peers. If you majored in liberal arts, uh, foreign languages, any other of the liberal arts and humanities majors, you have a huge premium when you go to law school. So why is that? It's because you're learning those uniquely human critical thinking skills, the stuff you can't automate. But we've been completely upside down on it because our whole system is focused on and invested in turning out these set professionals. And that worked well when the change rate was slower. And it doesn't work at all anymore. And it hasn't for about a decade. So we ask young kids what they want to be when they grow up. Absurd questions, because whether the jobs are going to be new, they're certainly going to be different. Um, We ask university students to pick a major. Now, that's based on what you were told you were good at in high school. I am absolutely certain I would not be speaking to you if I was limited to what I was told I was good at in high school. (laughs) It was a pretty thin slice of life, right? (laughs) We've all evolved from there, but we've created this system that says, you know, you're good at this, take these courses, go to the school, major in this. And then once you get in the university, they say, don't explore, don't take anything outside your lane. And that's to get your first job. And it may be one of 16 or 17 different jobs you have across five different industries. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really educational malpractice. And then we ask each other, what do you do? Just as a way, because we're so socially used to the system we've built. And it turns out that, you know, job loss is harder to get over than loss of a primary relationship. This is loss of everything you've been saying you are since you were five years old. And that's making it harder for us to learn and adapt. What we learned in this pandemic was we are superbly able to learn and adapt. We made some incredible rapid adaptations with almost no business continuity lost. 
uh, in universities and in uh, business. Uh, universities went online overnight. Universities that said they couldn't go online. They always could. They just had resistance, and this became the catalyst. Sticking with education for a second, Dan, you mentioned some numbers that are pretty harrowing numbers when it comes to uh, young kids' engagement with learning. Some 74% are engaged in learning in fifth grade, then that drops to 43% or something in eighth grade, down to 34% in 12th grade. Do you think that's linked then to the low engagement rates in the workplace that costs organizations billions of dollars every year? Is there a correlation between those things? Yeah, and Gallup's doing both of those studies, so they can probably tell you the numbers on the business side for sure. I mean, wasn't it billions of dollars in lost productivity because of declining engagement and sick, sickness and errors and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. When you're you talk to a kid, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, high school, it's awesome. I love it. My teacher's great. This is my friend. This is what I'm exploring. You talk to a kid in junior high and high school, and, yeah, it's okay. I did this on my test. Because that's when they tell you to stop exploring what you're good at, what you're bad at. It starts creating, you know, levels of insecurity and fears of the future. Um, there's a, you know, is it going to be on the test? Well, there's no test in life where there's a singular right answer. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a faulty logic setup. And then you get out into the workforce and you're just completely demoralized and motivated. Um, if we could focus on the workforce and getting the highest levels of engagement, can you imagine what we could do? Just to follow up on that then, if we're trained to behave like machines <laughs> with rote learning and information retrieval, yeah. then aren't we priming kids then to be more susceptible to automation <laughs> when they get older? Yeah, absolutely. Don't we need to be teaching, as you call them, the, the kind of uniquely human skills as early as possible now? Yeah. And the comfort with uncertainty and ambiguity. And instead of finding the right answer, framing the right question. That is the 180 degree shift we need to make. The other end of that spectrum, then, you talk a little bit about the education to workplace pipeline. And we have this idea that, you know, you get to your late teens, early 20s, and you have the status of educated conferred upon you, Mm -hmm. right? That you're some finished product. And you begin and end your book with the idea that we're works in progress, right? Mm -hmm. How do we extend the concept of education out into the work life, uh, you know, the life of work more comprehensively? So that we're we're lifelong learners, but that's a that's a part of the fabric of society instead of this finished product that we currently think about. You know, I think we're doing that in subtle ways. Um, before the pandemic, do you know what the one of the fastest growing franchises was? Hmm. It's those art bars where people go out and have a glass of wine and paint a picture. Yes. Oh, I've done that. They're fun. Yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't? So we're we're strive to do something analog and new. Um, there's an explosion of courses online. You know, many of us start them and never finish them, but at least we're starting them. So we're starting to do some of that stuff. Where we need to get better is fix the educational pipeline that focuses on perishable skills that are going to expire before you graduate Um, and focus on durable and transferable skills, those uniquely human skills, and set folks off with one set of perishable skills they can use in their first job with the expectation of that it is exactly that. Um, so we need to set that culturally in the in the in the educational pipeline. But we also have to look around to each other and say, "Hey, what did you learn today? Um, not what did you do today. What did you learn today? Not what right answer did you have? What interesting question did you find? What are you curious about? What do you care about? We really have to get folks connected to their own internal drive. 
Um, because we're not going to learn adapt for life with external forces. It won't work. We've got to pipe those internal for, you know, stoke those internal forces. And that's, you know, what are you curious about? What do you feel passionate about? Purpose isn't a rare, you know, piece of sea glass you find on the beach. It's a process of discovery across your whole life. It's, um, you know, I use that quote from Kate O'Keefe from the chill lab at Cisco. It's thinking about yourself like a product in beta and putting yourself as in as many experiences as possible. And just continuing to edit and hone that product because that that's that's the new normal, I think. Speaking of editing and honing that product, then one of the most kind of foundational pieces of advice you give in the book is that every time you hand a skill off to technology through something like automation, you have to add capacity to your own arsenal. Mm-hmm. Why is that, first of all, the most important piece of advice, do you think? And then how do we do that? How do we go about doing that practically? Well, I think that the the um, you're going to add perishable skills as well. So, I, you know, I have this this theory that we're entering the human capital era, and that the first and second industrial revolution was about reskilling into set skills that you would just repeat, and then the third uh, computerization was about upskilling, getting everybody a degree, and now it's going to be about more broadly investing in human capital and durable and transferable skills. And it's not that the other two go away; still going to get degrees or whatever they become. We're still going to reskill and skill. It's about getting better at doing that and more comfortable with doing that and then figuring out how do I continue to increase my uniquely human skills, which frankly make you a better human. They make you a better person to be married to, better person to live next door, a better person to have in your family. You know, creativity, collaboration, empathy, divergent thinking, those make you just better in the world. So we'll be practicing those in and outside of work. And then we'll just get more comfortable adding and deleting those perishable skills, just like we do applications on our phone. Speaking of change then organizationally as well, uh, you know, digital transformation is something that you define in the book a couple of times. And, you you know, generally, I'm I'm paraphrasing, you define digital transformation as something that's a learning-centric culture that leverages data. Uh, Is is that Mm -hmm. accurate? Yeah, and um, if you really want to dive into someone who's done a very good job, I think, defining what digital transformation is and where you are on the journey, it's Jeremiah O'Yang's work, because mm-hmm. he's got a whole dashboard in terms of where you are. And we didn't get, we could have gone deep in any single area because this book is so broad. We did not go, we talked to Jeremiah, but we did not go that as deep as he does in his research. Um, but So we took that overall uh, definition that you just described. It's it's not suddenly something's analog, then it's digital. It, when you go from analog to digital, suddenly you get an input for learning. You get something you can trace, learn, manipulate, you can customize, analyze, prophesize, you know, et cetera. Um, so that's the way to look at it, we think is, is learning centric. Again, Jeremiah's work is, is much deeper in terms of what, analyzing where you are on the journey. But um, we think if you take that overall mindset that it's really about learning. So much of this is just simply about learning. It's about the ability to say, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to try. I might fail. Let's find out. That's how you push to the new frontier. If we look at the numbers then on digital transformation, you know, according to McKinsey, it was something like 18% have actually transformed digitally. And then you know, something like 30% have, have actually been successful. So if you look then, yeah. you know, if you do the math, roughly it's about 5% have had a successful digital transformation. That is that a big problem or a big opportunity? Um, you know, that there's where there's where I'd love to see some new data cuz that data was from like 2015 late 2008. Yeah, so it was a while ago. 
Yeah, and, and um, I, I think the data that we're going to have after this period of time is going to be much more telling. Because, mm-hmm. for example, like, you know, telemedicine was always an option. As soon as we had stable video internet that was secure, we could do it. But we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And I heard a stat the other day, like, Children's Hospital here in Boston was doing something like 200 visits a day. Pandemic hit, they went to 2,000 overnight. And it was simply behavior was the difference. It wasn't technology. They could do it. So it'll be interesting to see if we declare more success around digital transformation in healthcare, for example, uh, post-pandemic and some of those other things. Because the early folks who did well in digital transformation were, you know, ICT, information, communication, and telecommunications. And speaking then of of organizations and their own kind of transformations and responsibilities to their employees, you mentioned towards the end of your book that the conditions in which we create and produce will actually matter more than the products we build uh, because those products and services are, are transient. Um, what do you mean by that? And you, Because know, that's kind of a big statement. Are you, are you talking about culture there? Yeah, I'm talking about culture, but I'm also talking about um, stopping looking at your product as an end thing and again as a beginning thing. So it's exhaust from our learning. So like, for example, Amazon, Jeff Bezos just stepped down yesterday, which is going to be fascinating to see where that goes. He's going to be the chairman now. But he's, he presided over a number of massive failures. You know, the only reason he got to success is he was willing to fail with the Kindle phone, you know, Kindle Fire phone. But when the Amazon Echo first came out, I remember it. Um, they were hiring a lot of folks in Boston in voice recognition technology. I was reading about that. And then I got something that I was invited to get a beta product if I wanted to. And so I did because I was curious. And I took that thing out of the box. I plugged it in. In the, the ease in which I could just speak to it to set a timer in my kitchen, turn off some lights in my house, I thought, whoa. Mm-hmm. And that was a product, but that was the birth of a whole category. There's a tremendous amount of learning. Now I know they're listening to us and all sorts of stuff like that, that we have to worry about. But that product became such a source of learning for them to launch an entire, probably industry. Mm-hmm. And more and more, especially when the products are digitally enabled and you can have that interaction with them, they become a huge source for learning. So you, you mentioned earlier the fact that, you know, if you stretch yourself to develop uniquely human skills like communication, collaboration, uh, you know, better leadership skills, you know, more design thinking. You know, any parent is a leader in their household creating a culture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Do you see this move towards uniquely human skills as potentially bringing together personal and professional identities in a really healthy way? Yes, and I think the pandemic's done that as well. Like, I look, I see your home or your office and you see my home and my office and if we had set this up differently, if we'd met in a space, you wouldn't have seen that I've got two paintings behind me from two friends that I care a lot about. And, you know, my dog could run into the room. So that line between work and life has really crumbled during the pandemic. And is that a permanent thing or is it a temporary thing? If we become more uniquely home and more learning centric, whether that's, you know, the paint bar at night and the classes you take or the course, short courses you take or the things you learn at work, um, it may become a, a better place for humans, I think, that because we, you know, if you think about it, at first we just survived. We had no work and learning, and then we left the farms to go to the factories, and then work became a separate place, and learning became a separate place. So we had these three kind of separate phases of our lives. 
what if they all became one again? Yeah, you know, even your idea of the human capital era, that the fact that we're more heavily invested in in the potential that, that we have as humans and our adaptability and our value, right? Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that you're thinking about now? Yeah, yeah. I wrote an article uh, a couple of months back. I got another one coming out tomorrow the next day about how we're coming out of, we've come out of this, allegedly come out of this shareholder value era where everything was, particularly in public companies, was focused on return to investors. And in that, you know, roughly 50-year period, we uh, started treating humans like a, a cost to contain rather than an asset to develop. So keep your human costs way down. Well, now that we're handing more and more off to technology and the costs can be controlled there, um, we should start seeing humans as the greatest single investment you can make. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at how values created on the S&P 500 in 1934, it was 100% physical assets. 1970, it was like 84% physical assets. Now it's probably north of 90% just humans. Humans are creating the value. And it's not just a shift away from a manufacturing culture, although we've done that. We may be manufacturing back with additive printing and, and that sort of thing, added manufacturing, but it's still going to be humans who create the value. Um, because in order for something to be automated, it has to be done by a human first in order for it to be codified and transferred. So we need the humans to explore that new frontier. So I think it's the human capital era, which I'm very excited about. Love it. Anything else that uh, you want to leave us with here? Last, uh, any other things you're working on? Hot takes, nuggets of wisdom? Well, I always say when I, when I end my talks that uh, we should all ABL, always be learning. And that learning is the new pension. It's how you create your future value every day as an individual and as an organization. I think the work you're doing is incredibly important. As you can tell, it's, it's had a big impact on the way I think about things. I've been through your book a couple of times. Mm -hmm. I recommend it to peers. I recommend it to parents at the playground. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what you're doing is, is very important. And I think you're doing it incredibly well. Um, so thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for taking the time to hang out and chat. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. I will leave you to the rest of your day. Heather, thanks again. All right, thanks. Take care. Take care. That was Heather McGowan. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you had a pen and paper handy for notes. Thanks again to Heather for taking the time out of her jam-packed schedule to offer up some wisdom. I'm adding the links to all our articles and anything else that's relevant in the show notes. Take care. Thanks for listening, and all the best.